Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugar cane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And for I think the first time, I was so excited reading the book that I'm going to be speaking to the author of today that I missed my subway stop by two stops because <laughs> I was fr- I was I was just scribbling within the margins and reading and really enjoying it. So that's never happened <laughs> before. But you can tell that I'm definitely really excited to be chatting today with my guest. Um, She is the author of three books. The latest is called Eat Up, and she's also a contributor, a food contributor for The Guardian UK. She was also a star and a finalist of the 2013 Great British Bake Off, and she is none other than Ruby Tando. Hi. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Great to be speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us from across the pond, Um, and thank you for this wonderful, wonderful read. Um, you, Ruby, you are like one of the most distinctive voices in food today. Um, you, this book covers so many topics, uh, which I want to get into, but as a whole, you know, it's a celebration of eating everything from a Krispy Kreme donut in the beginning um, to tomato soup, but it's also a sharp critique of today's popular cultural culture around food, particularly wellness trends. Um, So let's unpack that for a second. Um, Why did you decide to write this book? Um, I think, so, I mean, I had, I'd written something about uh, wellness and and clean eating a couple of years ago, just like a long read. And um, that kind of got me thinking about all this stuff. And I got some approaches from publishers wanting kind of a book off the back of that. But I really didn't want to write something in the negative. You know, I didn't want to write a rebuttal. I wanted to write something positive and Mm -hmm. inclusive and engaging. Something that suggested a way forward for food culture. 
So I kind of, uh, you know, mold it over for a bit. And this is what I was settled on, this kind of weird mm-hmm. weird book that kind of straddles these genres <laughs> and is a bit of everything. It is. But, um, you know, not to focus too much on the negative, but uh, what do you think is wrong with today's food culture? What do we fixate too much on or too little of? Um, I think... I mean, we just we we get so into discussing like the the smaller details of food and how it's prepared, mm-hmm. about what nutrients it has in it, and who should or shouldn't be eating it. Um, it. It's so like we have so many neuroses about this stuff, and what we forget in the process is how to eat in a way that makes us feel good. What foods connects to our heritage? You know, all of these bigger questions that are maybe not so easy to answer, and maybe cannot be like reduced to numbers or quantified in that way, but are really super important nonetheless. So that that is the stuff that I wanted to kind of bring the focus back around to. Right. And, you know, a lot, we've seen so many different diet trends circle through the ages. In fact, you write that, um, you know, today's wellness or diet trends in general, um, there's a long history of, of food going hand in hand with the sort of religious or ritualistic um uh, meditations, and so it's not surprising that we have these gurus today um, preaching uh-huh. what you should uh-huh. and shouldn't eat. Um, can I, if you don't mind, I would love to read a little bit from the intro that I think um, helps sort of summarize some thoughts. On yeah, that. go for it. Great. So you know, you write, do what you want. We're told, but you'll die if you get it wrong. I don't want you to feel this way. Food shouldn't be a bad boyfriend dragging you down or holding you to ransom. It should nourish your body as much as it fuels your mind. It should pump life through your veins. It should waltz and sync with your mood and your appetite, sometimes blissful, often mundane, and always a part of you. Um, And then you get into like the magic that happens sometimes with eating. And I think that... um, there's some really beautiful passages on that, but uh, but as a whole, I, um, you know, I, I'm really I'm really drawn to your philosophy of of seeing food as a part of you, not something that you're uh-huh. fighting against or trying to better yourself with. All yeah, the time. sure, and I, I think that's that's exactly the the things that I kind of um, I can't help coming back to again mm-hmm. and again, like this idea that food is is not just uh, this physical thing that you take into your body and it creates your body. I mean, that is magical in itself, but it is also to do with your emotional and social health and all of these things come together to create you. So, yeah, I mean, it is is so many different things. And to have a bad relationship with food, to also have a bad relationship with a huge part of your life. Right. And you you found studies that showed that when people didn't like what they're eating, they didn't absorb as many nutrients from that food. So joy yeah, is necessary yeah. to <laughs> to survive. It, it, it's it's wonderful to hear yeah. that, isn't it? Like yeah. I, I definitely like, you know, what? I'm not a scientist, so mm-hmm. I, I'm not like a huge, uh, you know, numbers boffin or like maths person. But like when I find a study I like the sound of, like that is the one I used to justify everything I eat from that point onwards. So yeah, yeah this study was uh, I think in, in the 70s, and uh, a group of Thai women were given food and a group of Swedish women and basically when given the food that was familiar to them like the Thai women had some foods that had like lemongrass and chili and things like that and the Swedish women were given that food 
And when the ones that had this food that was familiar to them, they absorbed iron at a far better rate than the ones who ate food that wasn't familiar to them. And then they switched it around. They gave the Thai women Swedish food and the Swedish women Swedish food. And it was the Swedish women who absorbed oh, the nutrients better. So there's so much to do with the way that you feel about food, how stressed you feel right. when you eat it, how much you're enjoying it. That has an impact on what you actually get from it. So if you're trying to eat something because you think it should be good for you, say, but you don't really like it, you're sort uh-huh. of forcing this thing down, it might not even be that beneficial to you. Um, it's just fascinating yeah. to think about. Yeah, basically, like, there's just no point. If something's making you stressed as you're eating mm-hmm. it, you're not going to be getting the best from it. So you're better off going in search of some things that you really can enjoy and relish, and that way you're probably more likely to profit from it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, eating has a lot to do with health, too. So, but, you know, we, we sort of know that. <laughs> and emotional health. I love how this book, you tackle everything from gender politics, comfort foods, breakup foods, uh, fat shaming, um, connecting mm-hmm. with your heritage through food, queer identity politics, culinary imperialism, and so much more. Um, and, and really beautiful... Um, you know, poignant passages about food. I love how you have one section that's sort of a recipe, but it's about Cadbury mm-hmm. cream eggs. And and you spend the, yeah. the same sort of wonderful attention to detail that one might spend over, I don't know, uh, uh, Meyer lemon or something to this Cadbury <laughs> cream egg. Yeah. <laughs> Choosing it, thinking about it, meditating about what it tastes like. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think that's so important. Like, I think we've we're a bit confused with the way that we 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 approach food a lot of the time, where we think that like, you know, obviously I am a cook. I write recipes for a living, so like, I love being in the kitchen. I love it, but I do not think that the only way to engage with food meaningly is to prepare it, meaningfully is to prepare it from scratch. I think there are a million other ways that you can really like connect with your food and understand it and look forward to it and, and engage all your senses with it in a way that's not just like, you know, making like a fish stew from scratch in your kitchen. I think sometimes it can be as simple as choosing whatever ready meal you want and like really taking the time to figure out what it is you need. So it's kind of like broadening the way that we interact with food and what we value. Mm-hmm. And um, there's just a whole host of foods that that go into this book and and make up part of the fabric of it it's 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 such a wonderful stew uh, or smorgasbord if you will um which is something i haven't seen in a while but also you noted you mention and quote from so many diverse voices going back to Uh. briat sovereign mfk fisher um laurie colwin's home cooking and then movies today and um some some of today's thinkers and writers like lindy west um i'm curious who who are you inspired by who who you know do you look up to as a food writer um i really i don't know quite a few people who were doing stuff at the moment i love um emily nunn who Mm. i heard on your podcast so you know i think she's wonderful and i love that kind of linking of food and I don't know, life, just all of the stories that surround food rather than just the nitty gritty of like how you make X or Y thing. So that that's what really gets me going. And I think also food writers like Teju Rao and Mayuk Sen who just like write these wonderful studies of like not just the way people eat, but the way people kind of approach their heritage and their identity mm-hmm. and all these wonderful things through food. That's awesome. Tejal, Mayuk, Emily, 
Shout out to you guys. Um, <laughs> that's so exciting. So let's talk a little bit about the, the connection to heritage because you have some wonderful tales about cooking um, a groundnut soup um, from uh-huh. your father's Ghanaian heritage. And um, yes. yeah, how did, so how did you get this, this recipe again from an aunt? Did you have to hunt it down um, from her? Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> so. So my granddad was from Ghana, and then he died a few years ago. And he was a funny man because he he'd been in the UK for probably over fifty years by the time that he died, and he'd completely like uh, assimilated to a British way of life. Absolutely, completely done that. Like he was very much like a meat and two veg roast dinner at the weekend kind of guy by the time that he died, which Mm. was really weird, you know, because he came from this culture where you'd have jollof rice and you'd all eat together and it was just such a different food culture, but he'd left that behind. Mm -hmm. And so when he died, I was really keen to understand a little bit more about where he came from and all of that. And so I approached like a, a great aunt of mine and asked her for like her recipe for groundnut soup, which is this wonderful Ghanaian soup made of like peanut butter and chili and garlic and ginger. So Grandma she sent me the, uh, yeah. in the mail this recipe, which I had to sign for. She used the most expensive postage option. Clearly, it was like a guarded recipe, oh, no. and uh, it was it was absolutely unintelligible. It was Uh-oh. it was uh, like use four or any amount of tomatoes, use some peanut butter, use an amount of meat. You know, like oh, it was it was one yeah. of those. Like passed down treasured immigrant recipes that doesn't make any sense to our very um very measured Western ways of cooking, I think. Yeah. And you also it's assuming a sort of familiarity, perhaps, and having seen some of the motions. Um, yeah, well exactly. And she actually said in her her letter, she was like, This would be much better if you came to me to learn it, which is, you know, I was told. So I couldn't help but wonder, have you have you done that yet? Have you gone no, to see it? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm so bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's always so much more to learn, right? And many more yeah. milestones to hit in cooking. Yeah. Um, exciting. So uh, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back chatting more. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Just plant a hand till last stand. So tell your mama you've been spreading honey, won't you? Tell your brother you've been spreading honey, won't you? Tell your sister you've been spreading honey, won't they? All right, we're back chatting more with Ruby Tando. Her latest book is called Eat Up. And your mantra, it sounds these days, is eat what you want. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Although I've had, do you know what? I've had to like be clearer with this because I actually thought eat what you want as a kind of like tongue in cheek 
thing not to be mm-hmm. taken dreadfully seriously but like so many people are like but what if I want to eat like french fries all day aren't I going to die and it's like that's not what I'm advocating like, I don't want anyone to die like please don't do that <laughs> right. so um, <laughs> yeah I think it maybe needs a bit more clarifying so what would you say uh, I don't know do you have any um, uh, substitutes that mottos that you're tinkering with or thinking about <laughs> I think, I mean, obviously this does not have quite the same snappy ring to it, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it's all about just eat what makes you feel good, eat what connects you to your heritage and your family and your friends, eat what, like, inserts you within the society that you live within, you know? Like, it's all of these things. It's just about nourishing yourself in a really holistic way rather than being fixated on, on physical health or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you when you mentioned from your heritage, um you know, you have some really interesting thoughts about how the wellness trends tends to pick up foods from many different heritages and, you know, mm. put them to their purposes. And then maybe when the trend dies, sort of turn over and, you know, just turn to the yeah. next trend and so forth. And it's not really giving you that that story or that, that connection with any culture at the same time. So Yeah, exactly. And you see it sometimes with... Um like, for example, one thing that people are picking up on at the moment over here, I don't know what it's like in the States, is uh, this kind of vague mysticism and romanticism yeah. around Asian food. And I say Asian because people just use it as like a as a catch-all. Yeah. Nobody ever seems to bother to specify what kind of Asian we're talking about. It's just used as a stand-in for healthy and holistic and joyful and spiritual, you know, which is obviously ridiculous, but it's kind of the taking of a culture and using it as as a shorthand for, like, health and wellness, which is, you know, obviously, it really, it flattens entire cultures, and also it means nothing in terms of actual health or wellness. It means nothing. You're absolutely right. And and you mentioned, likewise, African is used Mm. as a descriptor for any number of countries cuisines yes <laughs> yeah it's, it's a big old continent isn't it it's, yeah, it's yeah. pretty huge um I, I love that you trace the story of tea and how that is seen as mm. the most british thing ever but it's only been a few centuries in the making um starting with you know aristotic sort of culture um, but then mm. it was exotic it was this as you were mentioning exotic asian beverage yeah <laughs> That one has lasted. Yeah, tea was like, it's so interesting with tea because it has this history that is um, paralleled with the history of sugar in the UK. So like we, we found tea and it was kind of just drunk by a few people. It wasn't hugely popular. But then we found sugar as well. And it's when these two things came together that they became so popular because people realized they could have tea sweetened with sugar. Mm-hmm. And obviously both of these things have quite brutal legacies, you know, plantations and and tea growing and people not being paid properly for their labor and all of these things. So they've got these separate brutal histories that come together in such a genteel act of having mm-hmm. like the British cup of tea. So I find that really, really interesting. And ironic too, you mentioned that all this, you know, really, really sorted, sometimes bloody history is drowned mm-hmm. out by the genteel chatter or the clinking of China um, yes, that, yeah. that goes along with the tea drinking um, yeah, uh, you mentioned in, in this section on home cooking that, you know, we, 
Okay, I'll just read from it if you don't want to. You write, by and large, we Brits want to know as much about different places as we can, but in our quest to try China in a mouthful or taste Israel over brunch, many of us end up seeing the rest of the world through the diffracting, blurry, distorting lens of a bowl of soup, an apple slice, Uh a mug of kombucha. You know, the result is a myopic, romanticized vision of otherness, which fetishizes other cuisines rather than engaging with the cultures that created them or the raid or raids them for appealing window dressing. Um, So no doubt, I mean, Britain and the U.S. um, has broadened their appetites and, you know, there's global influences and, uh, you know, quote unquote, new American cuisine is sort of like global, Mm -hmm. globally influenced cuisine. But. How does one do that? How does one do that in a way you think that um, serves respect for the cultures that uh, that you know are are being uh, are being you know made homages to in in food? Mm. How, how does one cook from a different culture? I think there are so many things. I think maybe it begins with realizing that although food is so much, it's also just food. And so mm. you know, just because you can cook, for example, Thai food. It doesn't make you an expert in Thai culture or Thai families or Thai politics or anything like that. So it's the fragmenting of things to make sure that you're not, you know, assuming knowledge based on being able to master a cuisine. And also, I think it's just about doing things in a way that's a bit respectful. Like this one example that I always talk about is uh, my my friend who I went to university with, and he's from Singapore. He went to this pop-up uh, restaurant in, in London that... Promised, <laughs> promised an Asian experience, Uh-oh. which is you know obviously deeply problematic <laughs> as it is. And this restaurant was entirely staffed by white people. Mm. And when my friend and his Singaporean friends came in, they were like, "Can we offer you the Asian experience?" So that's like how not to do it. I think in in a nutshell, you know, mm. there's you cannot sell people their culture back to them. It, it's about learning from people. It's about engaging in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and being inclusive in your endeavors. And I know that that's something. That yeah. um, that you've you've sought to do in this book. Um, it seems like you're always trying to make sure that um, we cover we, we're inclusive. That you're inclusive in your writing and um, of for all different kinds of people. Uh, you know, make sure that everyone has can see themselves reflected through the the anecdotes in this writing. Although it's from a very mm. personal place. I think that that's, is that something that you think about a lot? Yeah, it is. And I I think, I mean, I I don't, I think maybe things are getting a bit better, but Mm -hmm. like what I see of the food media in the UK is this quite closed circuit. You know, it is a lot of people who kind of went to school together, who are from middle class backgrounds and they're white and, you know, straight and they fit like a certain they're just part of a certain demographic and it's easy for that demographic to replicate itself in the food media again and again and again, you know? And what I would like to see is more diversity come through in that. And I think one way to start towards that is, you know, I, I'm like from a working class family and I'm mixed race and I'm queer. And so it's, I want to write about these things honestly and with integrity so that hopefully if people read that, they'll think, Do you know what, there's a place for me in the food world as well. Mm-hmm. I love that you write, you know, um, that so much of a, you know, baking culture is, is from a, <laughs> well, you mentioned that there's, you know, p- folks who are taking classes in like 
baking therapy or something like that. Oh my that. God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like a way to, I don't know, I guess cope and unwind or, or deal with stress. Um, but at the same time, you know, the baker who's getting up at 3 a.m. would laugh, you know, laugh yeah. their tail off <laughs> if they had seen that. So we need to be thinking about all manners of class and so forth with our yeah. pursuits. Um I, I also, you know, think it's interesting that uh, the idea of Instagram and lifestyles uh, comes up so much in writing. I don't know if you uh, may have seen a recent article um, by B. Wilson, uh, your countrywoman, <laughs> fellow countrywoman, mm, um, yeah. about, you know, asking is, is Instagram killing food co- or like asking, you know, does it actually make us better at cooking? You know, mm. it, it was a... Yeah. That's one I feel really conflicted about because I think in so many ways, Instagram and that kind of culture has been pivotal in uh, the rise of wellness and the rise of things that look great and are about aesthetic and aspiration over actual appetite and and nourishment. So I'm, I'm wary of Instagram for those reasons, but also like... I don't know, in a way, like, there are plenty of good things. I don't think there's, like, Mm -hmm. an inherent evil to taking pictures of your food and and engaging with it in that way. If it gets people excited, it gets people excited. But definitely there are things that it falls down on, for sure. It's hard to transmit all that you just mentioned. You know, maybe it's oversimplifying sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. I noticed that you took um, a a vacation from social media, like Instagram and Twitter. But um, Mm I'm wondering if you'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, I'm pretty sure I will be. At the moment, it's just like, I don't know. It's so funny. Speaking of, like, Instagram and the need to share food and that, I, I feel like social media for me creates this vacuum where I feel like I need to yeah. spew opinions into it all yeah. day. <laughs> I think that's a pressure a lot of us feel. And I just, I was just a bit bored of spewing opinions. I want to be alone with my thoughts for a bit yeah. and kind of be a bit more measured, I mm-hmm. think. So, uh yeah, a little break. I'm sure I'll be back. Awesome. Yeah, let it simmer. Or, you know, like a long simmering soup. Let it develop the thoughts yeah. even better. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. Unfortunately, it looks like that's about all the time we have for today. But, Ruby, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Yeah, and um, I hope everyone gets their hands on Eat Up. It is such an entertaining book, so beautifully written, um, covers so much, and I can't recommend it enough. So check out Eat Up. And thanks again to Ruby. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.